you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, please find your way to Luke chapter 5. We'll be picking up in verse 17, which is where we left off last week in this long-term series through the book of Luke. And I want to share with you a message that I've titled today, A Forgiveness That Goes Above and Beyond. A Forgiveness That Goes Above and Beyond. Now, imagine this scenario with me, if you will. Imagine we're gathered here in this place, and we've got a a speaker, a preacher, who can really draw a crowd. I mean, this preacher's really just packing them in, all right? You got folks who are elbow to elbow. There's no room to move. There's not even room to get through the door. Now, now don't imagine too hard on this, because somebody might call for a vote of confidence on your current preacher, but, but you get the idea, right? Imagine that you've got folks who are just so packed into this place to hear the teaching of the Word of God that you just can't even move. I mean, you can't get in, you can't get out, and everybody is just captivated by the teaching of God's Word. And and as the Word is being taught, all of a sudden you start to hear a little bit of a scratching sound up on the roof. And, and you don't think much about it. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just a little noise. So you, you kind of, you know, you, you kind of try to ignore it. You try to pay attention. But as time goes on, that scratching becomes a little bit more heavy. You begin to notice that there's kind of some prying going on. There's, there's some things right up on the roof up here where, where, where you just, you know something's going on. Like, you know, there's some banging, there's some prying. And, and, and you're starting to see some things kind of falling down from the ceiling. And so you start to wonder, like, you know, has the ministry leadership team, has the pastor scheduled maintenance on Sunday morning when we're supposed to be having our worship time together? You know, are they making this mistake of, of lining up somebody to come and work on this sort of thing? What, what is going on? Is there, is there a, like a, a strange wild animal that's up here that's eating away our roof? Or what's going on? And then as time continues to go on, that, that just becomes more and more. And you kind of, you look around and you can tell that individuals are, are starting to whisper to one another about, about this noise that's happening up on the roof. And, and in that moment, all of a sudden, you, you start to notice that there's some sunlight that is peeking through. As a matter of fact, that the insulation up on the top of the building is, is plucked out. You can see it going outside of the building as someone is, is pulling that out. And suddenly, we've got a sunlight in our church in a place where you didn't expect to have one. And now everybody, of course, nobody's paying attention to that teaching, that awesome teaching that's happening. Everybody's eyes are focused on the ceiling and wondering what on earth is going on in this place. And then all of a sudden you notice that the sun is blocked for just a moment and that there is something that is coming down through this hole. In fact, you realize that there are individuals who are up there who are lowering down on a rope some sort of object that you really don't know what it is. I mean, can you imagine the kind, of, the kind of fear in that moment, the kind of speculation in that moment, the, the, of the, just the uncertain nature of what would be going on in that moment? And then as this thing comes farther down, you come to realize that it's actually a platform. It's actually a stretcher, and it has a person on top of it. How would you respond in that moment? How, how would you respond if, if all of a sudden, just here in the middle of this service, if, if something like that were to happen? I didn't orchestrate it. Don't worry. It's not happening here today. All right. But I can imagine that our responses would fall into one of three categories with that, right? I, I think that there would be some of us who would just hightail it out of here and run, right? I mean, there would be some of us who would be afraid. 
because, you know, we've had a number of terrorist attacks in our nation, right? If we were to see something like that, then our sensitivities are already raised a little bit to where we're expecting that something like that is, that's out of the ordinary is not something that is going to be a good thing for us, right? And then there may be some of you who are, you know, kind of a little, little paranoid that individuals are after you, right? I mean, I mean, you might see that hole opening up and someone coming down and you might think, oh, no, the SWAT team is coming after me for that tag I tore off my pillow last year, Right? Some of you might have that sort of mentality. You're going to hightail it out of here as well. So that's the first kind of response that I would expect to happen in that moment. Then there would be others of you that would want to stay and to fight, all right? Can I, I can imagine if a guy was lowered down on a platform in here that he's going to be pepper-maced in the face pretty quickly by some of you folks, right? I mean, you're going to, you're going to make sure that you uh, protect this facility. You make sure you're taking care of things. And then there are going to be some of you that are, that are kind of future-oriented, building-minded, where you're looking at this and you're, and you're just saying, I can't believe they're cutting a hole in the ceiling. I mean, my goodness, insurance is probably not going to cover this, right? Right? State Farm is not going to be a good neighbor and therefore us in this situation, right? We're not in good hands with Allstate with this hole opening up in the ceiling. And, and some of you would have that mentality that says, well, well we're going to have Small groups happening here on Tuesday and Wednesday night. How are we going to get this hole patched up before then? Call together the ministry leadership team. Call together the building team. Call together all these folks so that we can get this hole addressed and keep the rain out and keep things in a good situation for us as we gather to worship. Well, as we come to the passage that we look at here in Luke chapter 5 today, we're finding a situation where this very sort of thing happened in the life and in the ministry of Jesus. As he's preaching in this one place as he's teaching the word of God suddenly we see that the roof opens up above him and shocker of all shockers eventually he encounters the very thing that I've described for you here in that a man is lowered down through this sort of roof and, and, and ultimately, you know, these individuals who are here listening to Jesus' teaching aren't quite alarmed the same way that we would be. Why not? Well, well, they've already seen Jesus doing some pretty miraculous sort of things. They've already encountered Jesus going out of his way over and over again to deal with the outcasts of society, to welcome them into his grace. They've seen him healing in miraculous sorts of ways those who were sick such that he even commanded peter's mother-in-law to say for the fever to leave her we've seen him commanding the demonic forces where he he tells this demon to depart from an individual and the demon obeys what he says we've seen him commanding the forces of nature as there with peter he has shown that he has the ability to draw this great catch together after these fishermen have been through this long night of fruitless fishing And Jesus has shown through all of these things that he can do some pretty miraculous sorts of things in the midst of a circumstance which individuals were not expecting for those things to happen. So this crowd probably has a little bit of a mentality in this moment of, well, let me exercise a little bit of patience. Let's just watch and see what Jesus is going to do with this. I mean, they've already seen him working in so many miraculous ways. For them, this was probably a moment of anticipation, a moment of anxious waiting to see what is Jesus going to do with this 
situation? What miracle is going to emerge from these unexpected circumstances like this one here today? And ultimately, Luke has been drawing our attention to situations like this over and over again. Because Luke, as I've mentioned to you, as we've gone through this series, is what I would describe as a gospel for the rejected. So much so that I've titled this series of messages that we're going through with the book of Luke, this, this title of Outcasts. Because when we see Jesus interacting with individuals in the book of Luke, he's interacting with those who have otherwise been written off by society. They're considered the outcasts, those who seem to have no value in themselves, and so no one else is investing any value in them. And the example of the man that we're going to see here today is no exception to that rule. So in this moment, this crowd may have a different mentality than some of us. Sure, some of them would have been fearful. Sure, some of them would have been freaking out about the damage that was done to this property that they owned. But I would guess that there were a number of folks who were thinking to themselves, I'll bet this is going to be good. Because they knew that Jesus could make some good things happen out of some otherwise seemingly disastrous sort of consequences. And through all of what the people of Galilee were experiencing in these days, the crowds were slowly learning to look beyond the obvious in order to see the bigger picture of what God was doing in reaching out to the outcasts and bringing them into this hope of eternity that only Jesus could provide for them. And so as we gather this morning, I want to remind you that God is still doing wonderful things. He is still working in miraculous ways. He is still working on a plan that will culminate in Christ coming again such that those who know him may enjoy fellowship with him for all of eternity. Our God is still in the business of taking strange circumstances and making them into something beautiful and wonderful that we can celebrate for all of eternity. That's certainly what this crowd came to realize on this day in the midst of these strange circumstances. So let's join them now in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. There we read. One day, he, that is Jesus, was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, And the power of the Lord was present for him, that is Jesus again, to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. How is Jesus going to respond in the midst of this situation? We'll read in verse 20. Seeing their faith. That's an interesting phrase. Seeing their faith. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, 
to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately, he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. So let's just start by kind of laying a little bit of the framework of the setting of what's happening in these verses. As we set the stage overall, the first thing that really captures our attention when we read this passage is this miraculous healing, right? I mean, there's a guy who is paralyzed. He's lowered through the roof, and Jesus heals him. I mean, that's the thing that kind of catches our eye first and foremost as we read through this passage and think about what God is doing through Christ in this moment. And that's a miracle that is recorded by two of the other three gospel authors in the books of Matthew and Mark. So Matthew chapter 9 also speaks about this healing miracle of the man who's paralyzed, as is Mark chapter 2. And so they provide a little extra shade of the context of what's going on here. Luke leaves the details of this setting pretty vague for us. He only mentions that one day when Jesus was teaching, these things happened. He doesn't tell us where this event occurs. doesn't tell us where Jesus is teaching in these moments. But Matthew gives us a little bit more of the shade of meaning when he describes that Jesus was in his own town. And Mark actually describes the specific town that is in question here. It is the town of Capernaum, which was Jesus's essentially his home base for his ministry in that northern area of Israel known as Galilee. So as Jesus spent his time up in Galilee, the home base of his mission was this place where this miracle happens here today in the town of Capernaum. And Jesus is teaching. What exactly is his teaching? Well, we don't know, right? The gospel authors don't record for us in any of those three cases what Jesus is teaching, apart from the fact that uh, Mark records for us that Jesus was speaking the word to him. Now, anytime Jesus would speak, he would be speaking the word of God to individuals because he was the word of God. That's what we read in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus was the very Word of God. For Him to speak was to be speaking the Word of God. And so we don't have the real context of what Jesus is teaching in these moments, apart from the fact that He's speaking God's Word, as He always would be speaking. And the reason for that is that ultimately... The gospel authors are not trying to draw our attention to the context of the message that is being shared here. They're trying to draw us to the lesson, the object lesson of this event and what Jesus teaches us about this particular event. And perhaps we're most prone to miss at first sight who the real main character is of this narrative? Who is it that, that Luke really wants to draw our attention to? Because, like I said, you know, we, we go for the flashy thing, right? We go for the thing that's a little bit out of, out of the ordinary. We go for the paralytic. I mean, my goodness, this guy is healed and he can walk all of a sudden. When the reality is that Luke puts as much, if not more, context on the individuals who are there in the midst of this teaching. He doesn't spend the majority of his time focusing on the paralyzed man who's healed, but on those who observe this miracle and how they respond to this miracle. 
And those individuals who are there, who are witnessing the ones who interact with Jesus in this passage are described for us right at the outset of this passage where Luke says, there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So we know right at the outset that there are individuals who have come from far away. They've come from all around the nation of Israel including Galilee, which is the area where he's teaching where the city of Capernaum is, including Judea, which is that larger area down to the south side of Jerusalem, or or, or south side of Israel, and then Jerusalem, which is that holy city contained there within Judea. And so, so ultimately, we're talking about individuals coming from all of these locations to sit and to listen to Jesus's teaching. And they're described with those two terms, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. As we get further into this passage, we see those teachers of the law are also referred to as the scribes. And when we talk about Pharisees, we're talking about a religious party that existed within Judaism, within this religion of the Jews. And the Pharisees were ultimately a kind of an overflow of what had happened back in the book of Ezra. If you'll remember in the book of Ezra, Ezra, this scribe brought out the book of the law and he, and he explained the law to the people and ultimately entrusted the care of the law to this particular group of individuals and generation after generation after generation was responsible for caring for the law of Moses the law of God that had been entrusted to them and the manifestation of that group in Jesus's day was the group known as the Pharisees These would become Jesus' chief opponents in his ministry. This is the first time we see them in the book of Luke. But we're going to find that Jesus has conflict after conflict after conflict with these Pharisees who have ultimately a noble goal. They've got a, a, a solid understanding of God's word because it's their job to kind of look after the word of God. It's their job to draw out applications of the word of God. And in doing so, they've gotten off course because what they've begun to do is not to emphasize God's word and God's heart and what God is directing us to through his word, but they've begun to emphasize the applications of that word as though this is the absolute. Like you've got to check off all the boxes. You've got to do all the things that are written here that we've determined are the important things for you to keep the law. If you don't do these, then you're going to hell. You see, they missed God's heart in the law, which was we studied the book of Galatians several months back. We saw that God's law ultimately has the intent to point us to Christ, to point us to his mercy, to point us to his grace. And yet the Pharisees saw the law and said, this is the absolute standard. If you're not doing this, then it's going to be pretty bad for you in all of eternity. So when Jesus brings this message of peace, this message of grace, this message of forgiveness, the Pharisees... Just can't tolerate it because it doesn't fit within their framework, doesn't fit within their system. And the chief problem with the Pharisees, ultimately there were about 6,000 of these individuals, by the way, so not a really large group, but based on the fact of what they were doing for the nation of Israel, it was a very important group, a group which Paul came out of, a group which we see Nicodemus in John chapter 3 coming out of. Uh, It's a group which we see... Uh, ultimately, as Jesus is buried, he's buried in a borrowed tomb from Joseph of Arimathea, who is also a Pharisee. It's a very prominent sort of group in Jewish society, but it's a group that's gotten some important things wrong. The chief problem with the Pharisees was that their theology got in the way of their compassion. 
their understanding of what God required got in the way of their understanding of what God desired to do for those who missed those requirements. And so Jesus has a lesson for this uber-religious group here on this day. And it's a lesson that you and I need to take to heart as well. And the key lesson of this passage is straight from the lips of Jesus in that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive your sins. Let me say that again. Jesus has authority on earth to forgive your sins. As we look closer at this passage today, I want to share with you six ways Jesus' ability to forgive sins calls you to go beyond. Jesus is calling us to go beyond the things that we expect here on earth, the things which we see, the things which are within our comprehension, the circumstances that we live in. Jesus is calling us to go beyond these things. How so? Well, let me give you the first of those. Go beyond your circumstances to find that there is a God who welcomes you. Verses 17 through 19 here show us that one day Jesus is teaching. The teachers of the law are there. We see some things that are happening. Ultimately, there's this man who comes and he wants to be healed. But there are so many obstacles. There are so many circumstances that are in his way. I mean, first of all, he's paralyzed, right? I mean, this guy can't move around on his own. That's a pretty big impediment when it comes to making your way to a healer, is it not? Thankfully, he's got some friends. He's got some buddies who are willing to carry him, willing to take him to the place where Jesus is, willing to be sure that he can get into this place. And so that's one obstacle, but we also read that that they were trying to get in, but they could not get in. Ultimately, Mark gives us a little more shade of that meaning and saying that the entrance was so packed that individuals could not get through this crowd. And so they couldn't find a way to bring him into the crowd. Instead, they're on the roof. They let him down through the tiles with a stretcher into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. So the man who's, who's healed in these verses has got some tough circumstances. But thank goodness he's got friends who are willing to carry him through those circumstances. Some of you have got friends like that, right? You've got individuals you know when you are down. They're going to be there for you. They're going to help carry you through those circumstances. And really, we ought to expect to see in Christians what these individuals were doing. You know, Jesus, we, we read that Jesus, seeing their faith, responded in a certain sort of way. So Jesus could see something about these individuals. Ultimately, we ought to, we ought to understand that individuals who have faith ought to be doing this sort of thing. I mean, like, if we really believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, if we really believe that anyone who is apart from him is eternally condemned by God, but that God, through his grace and through his love, has shown a way for those individuals to be restored to him, if that is really our faith, then we ought to be taking our friends to Jesus. We ought to be doing all that we can to overcome the circumstances of the life that we are living in so that they can see that Jesus is the answer, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus has come to rescue them. And without the help of these friends, none of this would have happened. Because this man was a paralytic. He was paralyzed. We aren't told what caused his paralysis. Did he have a disease? Was he thrown from a donkey? Was, was he in a head-on camel crash? We're really not told. We're not told the extent of his injuries either. Was he paralyzed from the waist down? Was he paralyzed from the neck down? The text here does not say. 
We only know that he was paralyzed. He can't get around on his own. He has to rely on his friends to carry him around. And when his friends and he hear that there is a healer in town, they take on these challenging circumstances in order to get this man in front of Jesus. And as they take this man to put him in front of Jesus, they encounter a real problem. I mean, that overwhelming crowd. That's where Mark tells us many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. The circumstances are tough, right? But they don't give up. Instead, they keep seeking to find a way to get their friend Jesus. It's it's not a clean way, but Jesus welcomes this man all the same. And ultimately, we find that they do what we described here at the outset of this message in that they find a way to get Jesus through the roof. Now, Mediterranean houses in Jesus' day had these roofs with wooden beams that would go across. And then within those wooden beams, there would be packed mud and reeds and sticks to form this kind of thatched roof. Now, Luke shows us that the individual who owned this house was obviously a prominent individual, a wealthy sort of individual. It was, and we all expect that. I mean, we all expect if Jesus has done some pretty miraculous things and he's teaching within a house, it's going to be a substantial sort of house here in this day i mean just to be able to fit the sort of crowd that would be coming to listen to jesus's message and so but but luke tells us that this individual has tiles on top of his house as well which was not as common for individuals in that day but the houses in those days with these roofs were often set up such that there were a set of stairs that would go up on the outside of the house and that would then take you up to the roof which would then kind of function as kind of a elevated patio so, you know, the climate's nice there. You could enjoy the, the outdoor temperatures during the middle of the day. And individuals would walk up these stairs to enjoy this outdoor patio on an elevated sort of surface. The roof served that purpose. So it's not like these individuals had to go to extreme circumstances. I mean, it would be tough to haul your buddy up some stairs that are going up the side of a house, of course. But ultimately, th- there's a bit of a design here that, that, that kind of explains for us what might be a mental misunderstanding about how this sort of thing could happen and here they are they're getting a hole in the roof and that would have involved working through that muddy layer there in those roof beams now when you work through a muddy layer you're kind of digging your way out of that which is what mark describes in his gospel you're going to be expecting some things to fall through right i mean it's a messy situation it's a situation that none of us would probably want to deal with in a situation where we're gathering to worship the lord together And the circumstances were tough. But this man and his friends had an earnest desire to see Jesus. And they were not ready to give up. So when they drop this man down before Jesus, they find that he's not disturbed. Right? I mean, I don't typically like to be disturbed when I'm preaching. But Jesus has got a different sort of mentality. A mentality which probably ought to guide my thinking and my way of working as well. And Jesus shows that he welcomes interruptions from individuals who have a need. And you know, that's true for you too. Jesus has time for you. There there was a time in my life when I kind of functioned by this mentality that I didn't pray very much because I assumed that my problems were just not worthy of the time of a God who possessed all things, who knew all things, who had power over all things. I thought I was just wasting his time with my needs but when we when we look to something like what we see in luke chapter 5 here we find that jesus has time 
I mean, his power is not diminished by the time that we take. We we can offer up our prayers to him, and he still has the ability to rule and to reign over heaven and earth while addressing our needs. And so we, my friends, need to be sure that we always seek him. And like the paralyzed man in this passage, Faith ought to cause us to want to be near Jesus. When this man had faith, he wanted to find a way to be in front of Jesus. And, you know, maybe you're like this paralytic. Maybe you long to be found. Maybe you long to be near Jesus. Maybe you just want to see if something good might happen if you get into his presence. Maybe you're here and you're not a true believer in Christ, but you just want to experiment to see what's it like to be near people who believe in Jesus. When I tell you, This is a good place for you to be. This is a place where we want you to be. We welcome you and your explorations and your questions here in this place because we have a firm confidence in who our Savior is and it will not be diminished by any questions that you may have. So we welcome you, friends, to come and to share in this pursuit to see what difference Jesus can make when you get near to him. How easily, I mean, mean, how easily do we tend to give up on our friends whom we are trying to win to Christ when we face some sort of obstacle, right? We find out, like, for example, that a friend shares, lives a lifestyle that that we think is just not uh, something that is consistent with Christianity. We say, well, that's the lifestyle they've chosen. Move on to the next one, right? Or or we see that some individuals has, has made some sort of mistake or some individuals living in some sort of relationship or, or, or there's some sort of junk that's in someone's life and so often we're prone to just say well we tried but it's just not going to work out in this case these, these guys in the midst of circumstances they press on to bring their friend to Jesus and I just want I just want to say for you go beyond your circumstances to find that there is a God who welcomes you but secondly go beyond your senses to find that there is a God who sees you. Luke's words about Jesus in verse 20 are pretty intriguing to us. He describes how Jesus acts because he sees their faith. Jesus sees the trust of these individuals in him. Now you and I can't see the same sort of things about individuals, right? We can't sense what's inside of a man. We can't sense his consciousness. We can't sense his spiritual state. But Jesus can. Jesus knows what's in a man. He knows your heart. He knows whether or not you trust him. And because Jesus can see what's in us, he can see whether or not we have faith in him. And so, likewise, we see another thing that we can't hide from Jesus in these verses. Jesus can see our sin. That's why he could say to this man, friend, your sins are forgiven you. There's no, no, no record of an interaction or a dialogue that happens between Jesus and this paralyzed man. Jesus just speaks and says, your sins are forgiven you based on the faith that I see in you. And ultimately, my friends, we've all got sin in our lives. We've all missed God's mark. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, the Bible says. Sometimes we go to great lengths to try and hide our sins and our failures from others. That's certainly what the Pharisees tried to do. Jesus talks about how they painted the outside of the dish without cleaning that which was on the inside. But ultimately, we can't hide our failures from Jesus. 
He knows the worst things that there are to know about us. He knows the worst things that we've got in our history, the worst things that we've ever done. And author Percy Walker, author Walker Percy actually once wrote, we love those who know the worst things of us and don't turn their faces away. Now Jesus knew the worst things about this paralyzed man, and yet he did not turn away from this man. Instead, he welcomed him. And friend, I want you to know that Jesus knows the worst things about you as well. But he has not turned away from you. He came as the representative of Almighty God. And the God of creation knows more about us than any human could possibly know about us. But here is good news. Not only does he choose to not turn away from us, he actually steps out into our past to bear our shame and our guilt, and the penalty of our sins. And as he does this, he invites us to receive his righteousness. And as the one who should be encountering the wrath of God because of his sin, the one whom Jesus sees in such a way that he knows that his sin has put him at enmity with Jesus by the very deeds of his life, finds not a message of condemnation in this moment, but a message of forgiveness. As Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven what a word what a word he calls this man friend you know jesus is a friend of sinners that's ultimately the message that we're going to see luke driving home through this idea of outcasts that he has come to rescue those who are in need of a healer he has come for those who are sick with sin to bring them into a greater relationship with the Lord to break down the barriers that keep them from knowing him and enjoying his fellowship Jesus has come to be your friend he offers to you the opportunity to be known as a friend of God what a word what a savior and so I urge you go beyond your senses to find that there is a God who sees you but thirdly go beyond your expectations to find that there is a God who has come for you. Because as Jesus declares this man's sins to be forgiven, the Pharisees raise an objection. This is not what they were expecting. And we can agree that's not what we should be expecting from any average man, at least. That's all because of who they assume Jesus is, what they assume him to be. That's why in verse 21 we read that the scribes and the Pharisees that in those individuals who I told you are more the focus of Luke's text here than anyone, they begin to reason to themselves, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so these, these Pharisees, they've got a right understanding of God. They've got a right theology when it comes to forgiveness because it is true that only God can forgive our sins. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4 says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Our sin is against God. I can't forgive your sins, right? Your sins are not against me. Your sin is against God. That is what hinders your relationship with Him. And so the issue the Pharisees have is not that they don't realize who must forgive sins, it's that they don't recognize that the one who forgives sins is there with him. They don't recognize that he is standing right in their very midst. They don't realize that he has come for them. 
They do not recognize the day of their visitation. When the Pharisees finally come, become convinced that Jesus is claiming to do what only God can do, they accuse him of blasphemy. Blasphemy is a pretty big word, but it's a word that shows up many times in Scripture, and the essence of the word it ultimately boils down to the act of mocking or degrading God or claiming to do what only God can do. And these are serious charges because an individual who is guilty of blasphemy, the law called for that individual to be dragged outside of the city and stoned to death. And we find that this group of individuals from this day on, these Pharisees and the scribes who are a small sect that's within the Pharisees entrusted with recording the law and interpreting the law, we find that these individuals set out to make it their mission to bring Jesus to this point of condemnation and death which results in his going to the cross. Why are they opposing him? Well, ultimately the Pharisees were upset that their influence was being eroded i mean they were the religious professionals they were the ones who everybody went to to ask questions about jesus so so as they hear about jesus coming and doing some miraculous things they hear about some activity in the religious state they're going to make sure that they're up front they're they're there to decide whether or not they're going to give jesus their stamp of approval in their mind jesus has to get their acceptance in order to be an authority who is worthy of anything in jewish society you see they've established themselves at the top of the rung And there's no room for God to function in their minds. And you know, this is a danger of a growing church. I'm excited to see that we are a growing church. And and don't hear me as seeing this as anything negative. But there's always a danger for a growing church. And I've seen this happen in churches in the past. Where individuals say, man, we want to grow. We want to see more people coming to Christ. We want to see that growth. And then they don't think that that means there's going to be any impact to their influence their authority their ability to make decisions for the church and so as new faces come in and there's new opportunities for individuals to get, to get plugged in they have this mentality that says don't step on my turf now i'm not sensing that from anyone here in this flock but that is a danger for any church that has experienced some good godly growth that we could at some point take so much ownership of the authority that's been given to us that we can't see god's kingdom growing for a greater purpose by allowing others to come others to be a part of this body, others to be functioning for the health of this organism. So I just issue that as a little bit of a warning, and that there's always a danger for any one of us to become Pharisees in this sense. Now, if only the Pharisees had realized that there was something more to be gained than temporary control over other men, then they would have surely welcomed the Savior who would have given them everlasting peace. But pride got in their way. And they thought they had it all together. They assumed they could earn their own way by keeping all these rules that they had put together. They didn't expect that God was going to step in and make the only way to be restored to him by his own work and his own doing. And friends, I just want to tell you, you cannot do it alone. You cannot work your way into righteousness. You cannot flawlessly keep the law time and time again we find that we are failures of living out what god has designed for us to live praise god he has made the way he has done the work so i call for you to go beyond your expectations to find that there is a god who has come for you fourthly go beyond your physical needs to find that there is a greater 
malady that plagues you. Verses 22 and 23, we find some action happening where ultimately Jesus calls out the Pharisees in their reasoning, in their hearts, thinking that Jesus does not have the authority to do what he is claiming now to do. And it's hard to imagine a greater physical predicament to be in than the one that this man was healed of, right? I mean, this man couldn't move on his own. But he had a greater problem than his physical needs. He had a greater problem than his immobility. He had a greater problem than paralysis. And, and, and ultimately what we find here, right, is that even though this man couldn't get out into the bars, right, even, even though this guy couldn't chase after the prostitutes, even though this guy couldn't go and steal a bunch of things from his neighbor, he still had a severe problem. And I don't care how severe your physical ailments may be, you still have a greater problem problem because what we learn from this passage is this you can be paralyzed you can be unable to get around without the help of your friends you can be lying motionless in your bed and you can still be full of rotten sin and jesus wants us to know that this is the greater challenge that we face this is the thing that we really need rescue from So he calls for the scribes and the Pharisees to consider this very thing. Which of these things is easier? Is it easier to say that your sins are forgiven you in such a way that a man's sins are actually forgiven him? Or is it easier to say get up and walk to a man who is paralyzed such that he actually gets up and walks? Well, I can say that you're forgiven all day long, right? I mean, it seems like a pretty easy sort of thing, right? I could walk around and tell every one of you, you're forgiven, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. If you can't see what's on the inside, right, that's a pretty easy sort of thing to do, right? But if we're talking about actually having the authority to do this thing, then it's a different matter altogether, right? I mean, at face value, just looking at the outside of individuals, it seems easier for us to say you're forgiven than to say get up and walk when you're paralyzed. But but the question is, do you really have the authority to affect the results of what you are describing and the results of forgiveness can be seen but the reality is that forgiving sin is the harder thing to do because forgiving sin requires a greater authority and in these verses jesus does the harder thing to make the visible this 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 harder thing which it is for us to see and to give a judgment on on the outside so that we can know that he has the ability to do the real harder thing on the inside and by doing this he shows that our main need is not physical healing your main need is not for your pain to go away your main need is not to delay your demise for another couple of years your main your your main problem is not that you would keep your body going for just a few more moments until you end up essentially at the same fate you would have ended up if you didn't have that extension of time Your main need is that you need to be forgiven by a holy God who holds your eternity in His hands. But are we, church, are we giving the appropriate attention to this need? How often do we see individuals who are, you know, working to raise awareness for some sort of physical malady? I mean, we see this sort of thing all the time, right? There's these, you know, awareness months that happen. There are these campaigns that happen on Facebook. You've got individuals who are raising funds for uh, uh, dealing with one, indivi- uh, one sort of uh, physical ailment or another. You've, you've got 
individuals who are lobbying your legislators to get more money for these needs. And, and these are very successful sorts of campaigns we tend to see. But not many individuals pay attention to the real condition that we are all facing. The greatest condition that we would face, according to what Jesus does here, is the condition of our sin, the condition of our sinfulness. And the only solution to that condition is the forgiveness of sin that God offers to us through Jesus Christ. And so you see, it's possible to be healed and not to be forgiven. It's also possible to be forgiven and to not be healed. Jesus declared that for this man before he healed him. And here Jesus makes it clear for us which one of those is more important. He prioritizes that which needs our greatest attention. He forgives. And then to show that he has the power to do that. He heals. So know this, my friends, that Jesus' first order of business as the Savior of mankind is to forgive individuals of their sins. So what do we do with that? Well, I like to summarize it this way. Believe in miracles, but trust in Jesus. Believe in miracles, but trust in Jesus. I believe in miracles. I believe that God is still in the miracle-working business. I believe that God is not bound by the parameters of the creation that he has made, that he can bend those parameters at any time that he desires. And there are times when I will very specifically pray for miracles to happen in my life and the lives of others. But let me tell you this, I do not trust in miracles. I do not place my trust in whether or not God decides to respond to a particular prayer that I offer to him. I believe in miracles, but I trust in Jesus. Because ultimately, Jesus has shown, even through the event that we're looking at here today, that he can accomplish the greatest of all miracles in wiping away the debt of my sin and the debt of your sin. And so I call for you as well, my friends, to believe in miracles, but to trust in Jesus. And so I say to you, go beyond your physical needs to find that there is a greater malady that plagues you. And be sure that you are seeking Jesus' help with that malady more than any other. This leads to the next point. Number five, go beyond your sin to find that there is a God who can forgive you. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus heals this man. And he does so with a message Why does he heal? In verse 24, he says, So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So this passage really all boils down to Jesus' authority. We talked last time about Jesus, how he's willing to cleanse us, how he's willing to forgive. But what difference does it make if he's willing, if he is not able to do this very thing? And Jesus shows us that he is willing by this miracle that he performs. So when he comes and he prepares, performs miracles like this one, we find clear historical evidence that Jesus can forgive. He has authority to do that very thing. And as he carries out this miracle, Jesus forces you and me and the scribes and the Pharisees to all make a singular decision. Do we truly believe that God can save us and forgive us of our sins? If so... And if this man is able to get up and walk with a visible, tangible sign that his sin is truly forgiven, then we must all acknowledge that Jesus is proving that he is God in the flesh. He is the divine man. He is God walking among us. Come down to earth to save us from our sins. 
And God has come down for you. And so I urge you, look beyond your sin. There's hope for you. In our nation, we know that the Supreme Court is the highest court that exists, right? There are many courts, many levels of courts that lead up to the Supreme Court. But ultimately, if the Supreme Court decides to to take a case, it doesn't matter what decisions any court under that has made to that point. It doesn't matter if, if, if a court was even just or unjust that was under that. What ultimately matters is which court has the greatest authority and what is the decision of that court on that issue. That becomes the rule of law that stands in our nation. And ultimately, my friends, we find here that Jesus is the ultimate authority when it comes to the forgiveness of our sins. He is showing that he has the authority to forgive sins. There is no lower court which can condemn us in light of the decision that he renders. Do you see, you see the connection there, my friends? Do you see it doesn't matter if someone else has told you that you are worthless. It, it doesn't matter if someone else has, has cast you aside as though you are invaluable. What matters is that the chief authority on the matter has said that you can be forgiven. And his rule is that he will forgive you if you will come to him by faith. I don't know who's made a decision for your life. I don't know what court has ruled on your circumstances. I don't know who's told you that you'll never amount to anything. I don't know who's called you worthless. Perhaps you're even telling yourself that you're not worthy of God's grace, but I urge you, appeal to the real source of authority. Take your case to the Supreme Court of the universe because he has rendered a judgment that will grant you a pardon if you will come to him. So hear the real miracle of this passage. The Lord of all does not hate the sinner. He surely does hate the sin, but he loves the sinner. He has moved heaven and earth to show us that he is willing and able to forgive the sinner. Our Lord is a Lord of love who truly forgives. And that's a forgiveness that is for you. He has the authority. We come on his terms. He's not some magic genie in a lamp granting our wishes. He is the Lord of all. So we come to him by faith. And we go beyond our sin to find that there is a God who can forgive us. But sixthly and finally, go beyond your amazement to find that there is a God who calls you. In verse 26, we read that they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. They were filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. This Greek word, which is translated remarkable things, appears only one time in the New Testament here in this verse. It refers to something that's unexpected, something unbelievable, something marvelous. You see, the Pharisees got more than they were expecting when they came to hear the teaching of Jesus, when they came to be in his presence. But there's such a sad outcome to this passage. Because do you know what the only thing is that we do not find from the Pharisees here? We don't find where any of them says Okay, I see now that you can forgive sins, so please forgive my sins too. They all have this general amazement, and they even give praise to God for one who can heal and one who has proven his ability to forgive sins. But they do not cry out to him to forgive their sins. How tragic it is to come and to hear of God's saving mercy through Christ and to be filled with awe and wonder and amazement and yet take no opportunity to say, 
Please forgive me, Lord Jesus. Now, often in our day, it's the good news that Jesus forgives sinners preached to those who do not, will not respond. How often do people say, that was a great message today, preacher, without saying, forgive me of my sins, Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I am one of them, and so are you. And Jesus lived a sinless life in human flesh in order to offer to God the righteous obedience that we owe him. He died in our place as a substitute, the just for the unjust, so that he could satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. God raised him from the dead to show that this once-for-all sacrifice was a sufficient sacrifice. It was an acceptable sacrifice to him. And now, God calls men everywhere, including men and women and boys and girls in this place to turn away from their sin, to seek his forgiveness by entrusting their lives to Jesus as Lord. All God requires of us is that we admit we're sinners and trust in Jesus. And so will you, in hearing a message like the one that's here before us today, say, this is a good message. This is a good word. These are wonderful truths. Or will you say, I desperately need this message. Save me, Lord Jesus. Don't make the mistake of the Pharisees. Don't go away having heard wonderful things about what Christ can do, only to neglect these wonders in your own life. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts. Confess your sins. Call on Jesus to forgive you. Believe in Jesus, my friends, and be saved. Entrust your life to Him and find that He is a willing and wonderful and forgiving Savior who can do some awesome things with you in your brokenness, coming to Him to be restored. He goes above and beyond to make you into something which is new. Would you pray with me? Father, wonderful things we find in your word. Wonderful truths to know that in spite of the fact that we have rejected your will, in spite of the fact that we have failed at keeping your design, in spite of the fact that, Lord, we have practically spit in your face, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, in spite of these things, you've sent a rescuer. In spite of these things, you have sent one who, as we saw last week, is willing to cleanse. But not only that, as we see it this week, he has authority to do these things. We thank you, Father in heaven, for sending your only son. God in the flesh. To bear the penalty of our sins. To pave a way for us to be restored.